Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I have a very good guest for you. It's Dr. Phoebe Ellsworth. She is Frank Murphy, Distinguished Professor of Law and Psychology and Faculty Associate at the ISR Research Center for Group Dynamics at the University of Michigan in the U.S. She is noted for her work in law and psychology. More specifically, she has done research on jury behavior and decision-making, public opinion and the death penalty, and eyewitness identification. Her other main research interest is in emotions, which will, which will be another of, of the topics that we're going to cover up today. So, Dr. Ellsworth, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's my pleasure. Okay, great. The pleasure is entirely mine. Okay, so the first question I would like to ask you, uh, and because I'm also very interested in psychology and the history of psychology and its several branches, so you participated in the work done by Dr. Paul Ekman, that was one of the leading researchers when it came to uh, studying uh, cross-cultural uh, communalities and variation in terms of facial expression of emotions, correct? So, could you tell us a little bit about that and uh, how was your participation, what you helped him with and other things like that? Okay, so it was a long time ago. I was a graduate student then at Stanford, but there was no one at Stanford who was interested in nonverbal communication, which was what Paul was doing then, or, or even much in emotion. So Paul was working at the University of San Francisco, uh, and that was near Stanford. So two summers, I just uh, worked for him as a research assistant because he was interested in what I was interested in. He had not done any cross-cultural work at that time. He hadn't even done much emotional work. He was mostly interested in nonverbal signs of stress and things like that. He came from a clinical background. Um, so he was not the famous world-renowned Paul Ekman. He was just you know, a guy who was interested in the same sorts of things that I was. Sure, and sure. Uh, he was happy to hire me, and it was a, uh, an amazing couple of summers. A lot of good research came out of that. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. And so, um, what type of work did you do with Dr. Ekman, and what results did you come to? That, that is, what evidence did you collect back then in terms of uh, how facial expressions of emotions might have some commonalities across cultures or, or not? Okay, so... Um we also happened to run into an anthropologist who had access to uh, an extremely remote culture in New Guinea where nobody had even ever seen an American magazine or a European magazine or film. And um, we were 
at that time, the basic assumptions in social psychology were that uh, emotions were completely variable across cultures, uh, that they were learned within a culture, and um, uh, that uh, there was really nothing universal about them. Um, and uh, it was, this was sort of in psychology, this was based on the work of Schachter and Singer, uh, and in, uh, but it was also the predominant point of view in anthropology as well. Uh, and um, neither Paul nor I thought that that could be completely true. I mean, you go to a movie theater and you see a Japanese movie, for example, and um, you seem to have a feeling for what people are feeling and what's going on and so forth. So it seemed as though that general pervasive point of view at least had to be qualified. Um, both Paul and Carol Izard had done some research on um, across quite a few cultures, uh, but nothing as remote as the New Guinea culture. So if we showed people in different cultures uh, emotional faces, and they agreed with the Americans, you could always say, oh, well, they've seen American movies, they've read American magazines, uh, that doesn't show anything about uh, any underlying generality. So that's why uh, it was such a great opportunity to be able to go uh, to New Guinea. So my job was to um, basically set up the study. I didn't get to go to New Guinea. I just, I set up the study. I pre-tested all the faces on uh, American subjects to make sure to get the, the ratings uh, for them and see whether we could get a really good, happy, sad, fear, anger um, for, and we wanted stimulus people who were men, women, and children, right? So. It was, and we looked through all the people who'd ever done research on facial expression and emotion. I tried to collect uh, pictures for, I tried to collect pictures for nine different emotions because if there was any theory involved at all, it was Sylvan Tompkins's theory of basic emotions, which had nine, and he was Paul's advisor. But I couldn't get nine uh, because um, if we want high agreement photos for which we had men, women, and children, three of those emotions, I just couldn't get the set by the time we had to go to New Guinea. So we ended up with six. Uh, but that was good enough. I mean, the, the basic question was, is there any recognition of some random set of emotions for people in very different cultures. So which emotions they were actually wasn't a big deal at the time. Um, so they went to New Guinea, had to modify the procedure a little bit because uh, uh, the New Guinea people 
had no idea what a rating scale was, for example, and came back with um, a way better than chance agreement for most of the uh, emotions, and um, surprise was the exception. And that was pretty big news. I mean, that given the general um, assumption that all emotions were uh, came from what you had learned in your own culture, that people agreed on the on five of our six emotions um, was news to the field. And uh, up until then, textbooks had always had a sort of a uh, a picture of a person on one page, and then it would say, what is this person feeling? And it would look as though she was really in agony. And then two pages later, it would show that she had just won the Miss America contest. So then the text would say, ha, 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 see how wrong you are. There's no intrinsic meaning to facial expressions. The next 20 years or so, the emotion chapter would include the six, six of the emotional faces that were in the Ekman and Friesen New Guinea research. And the news would be, look, there's general recognition of faces across cultures. So it did have a big influence. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And let me ask you now. So you validated sort of these six emotions or these six facial expressions that go with the emotions across across culturally back then. But uh, are those six emotions still today backed up by the evidence in terms of them being identified correctly across all cultures, or at least the cultures that we've already studied. Okay, so surprise never worked in the first place. Mm -hmm. I think that um, if you live in a culture where there's a lot of danger, you don't have the luxury of having just plain surprise. Surprise probably means something awful is going to happen, and they didn't differentiate it from fear. Um, I think on the whole that uh, of course now we know a lot more about cultural differences in emotion, feelings and perception um, that that wasn't even a field in psychology then, although of course that's what the anthropologists did. Uh, but I think that if you tried to replicate that experiment, you would still find high agreement about happy, sad, fear, anger. Uh, and there are some researchers who have actually added quite a few emotions to that list, people like Dacher Keltner, and find agreement across more emotions. Not ever total, exact, complete agreement. And so, I think part of the controversy is uh, based on what people in different fields want to call similarity and difference. So the, 
cultural psychologists, the anthropologists, they're really, really interested in differences. So if you get 80% agreement, it's that 20% that's really important and interesting to them, whereas people, evolutionary psychologists, people with a more universalist point of view, it's 80%, that's really pretty good. You couldn't get that if there was nothing there at all. And uh, I think that pretty much sums up the state of the field today. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And it's interesting that you just now referred to the fact that the way we look into the evidence and cross-cultural variation or not, uh, in this case about emotions, also depends on the cognitive or, or the theoretical lens that we are applying to the evidence. So, for example, as you said, the anthropologists usually uh, are, are much more interested interested in the differences instead of the commonalities or the similarities across cultures. So, could you please tell us a little bit about what uh, sort of different uh, theories of how emotions work uh, we have nowadays? Okay, so, um, as I said, when we started out, uh, Tompkins had had a theory, Paul really was not a very theoretical person. Uh, but given these results, somehow these six emotions that we studied uh, developed into a theory of the six basic emotions. And that um, that has been incredibly influential. That there's hundreds of studies in which those are the six emotions that are studied. Um, you know, there almost were three more, we just didn't quite have enough pictures. Um, uh, so that is the prime example of a categorical theory. A theory says there are distinct modules or separate emotions in strong form, they would say um, there's basic neural programs. There's an anger program. There's a sad program, and so forth. And um, they're adaptive. Uh, and um, and this also corresponds with the the common sense view of emotions in most cultures. People say, you know, what are you? Are you are you sad or angry now? As though those are the two choices. Um, so that's one set of emotion of theories. Um, you dimensional theories, which also have a long history, um, basically say uh, that um, there are certain dimensions of the way you perceive the world. So a big one is good or bad. And uh, another one is how intense is it? And so, uh, and then you can put any, you can score any feeling you have on those dimensions. So I can say uh, you're angry, and you'll say that's yeah, pretty bad, and it's very intense. Mm -hmm. And I say happy, and you say that's pretty good, and that's also very intense. Um, so that allows me to have 
an, inf an infinite number of emotions. So I can say jealous, and I can say uh, um, confused. I can say things that aren't in um, the categories that are usually studied. So that was that's uh, in many ways an advantage. Most people who tried to do this, starting with Wundt in in the 1890s, would have three dimensions or more than three dimensions. But it almost always happened that good, bad, and strong and weak came in everybody's theory, and they never could get real consensus about the other dimensions. Good and bad and strong and weak, I think, weren't enough. But what else you needed, um, the results were always inconsistent. So now the main dimensional theorists only have uh, arousal on one dimension and positive-negative on the other dimension. So a, a Russell's circumplex model is probably uh, the most recent view of that, but there have been a lot like that. Um, okay, so the problem with the categorical point of view is there's just not enough. That my emotional life can't be summarized by five or six different feelings. It's more complicated than that. Um, I think the problem with the dimensional point of view is that there aren't enough dimensions. So think of the emotions that are really, that we think of first, that are very important, sort of anger, fear, disgust, they're all next to each other. They're all negative and high arousal. And you think, well, they're not really. You cannot say that um, fear is a more intense version of anger and a more positive version of anger. That there seems to be, there needs to be more to differentiate them. And then you go to the opposite quadrant of this circumplex, and you have emotions like calm, serene, relaxed. And you said those are practically the same thing. There's no variability going on here, and there's you know too much variability up in the negative aroused. Okay. Um, nonetheless, the dimensional theorists do sort of contribute this valuable idea that there can be uh, hundreds, thousands, infinity different emotions. Um, okay, the other main brand of theory that you hear about today are constructivist theories. Um, and they go right back to where we were when Ekman and I started, right? So the, the idea is that really um, almost everything about emotions comes from your interpretation of the situation, which you learn in a culture, and the concepts that are in your language. Uh, and you can't see, and the faces really don't tell you anything about categorically distinct. It's all um, constructed on the spot. Uh, learned, um, nothing, nothing really innate except for this sense of good, bad, and strong, and weak. 
Um, okay, so, and Lisa Feldman Barrett is probably the main proponent of this point of view now. Um, Okay, and you said you wanted to wait to ask me about appraisal theories, but that would be the other category. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yes, exactly. So if you could tell us about that, because in fact, it's your theory, correct? And so uh, what does uh, appraisal theory tell, uh, tells, uh, tell us about how our emotions function? Okay, so appraisal theory, first of all, it is a dimensional theory, but it there are uh, there are not two dimensions, there are uh, six or seven, depends on who the theory is, theorist is. Uh, so that, that allows it to have the infinite number of emotions. And it is also, in many ways, a constructivist theory, because it, has to, it says emotions, the differentiation of emotions is the differentiation of your perception of the situation of what's happening to you now. Um, the difference between it and other constructivist points of view is that we went on to say, okay, so what is it about the situation that's going to be really important in differentiating emotions? Um, certainly everybody agrees whether you think it's basically good or bad, uh, whether it's Tuesday or Wednesday, that is a difference in the situation, but probably doesn't have much to do with the differentiation of emotion. So we identified, uh, first of all, novelty. Has something changed? Is it good or bad? Um, how certain are you of what's happening? Is it, if you're uncertain and it's unpredictable, you're going to be moved towards the fear end of the continuum. Um, uh, how is it um, blocking a goal that you're trying to get to, helping you to get to that goal? What is the goal conduciveness of it? And most of us have that as a separate demotion, uh, dimension from whether it's intrinsically good or bad. And so many critics don't like that. They want every emotion to be related to getting closer or farther from a goal. So novelty, certainty, um, uh, uh, valence, goal conduciveness, agency, what caused this? Um, and they're especially important for the negative emotions. The question is, did I cause it? This mess that I'm in, is it my fault? Is it your fault, some other human being? Or is it just God or fate or a combination of awful circumstances? <clears throat> if it's my fault, I'm going to feel something in uh, like shame or guilt. If I think it's your fault, that's the classic anger situation, but it's another human being. And if it's sort of nobody's fault, then I'm going to uh, end up in sadness, depression, and so forth. And then finally, how much control do you feel? Can you cope with the situation easily? 
you think you might be able to cope with it, but it, there's, uh, it's going to take a lot of effort. Do you think it's hopeless? No matter what you do, you can't change this. And finally, um, Klaus Scherer, who developed uh, an appraisal theory of emotion just about the same time as, as I was working on it, and we had no idea that the other person was doing that, he had a final dimension, which was sort of the morality of what's happening. Does this fit with my personal standards or with the, the standards of my group? And I think for human beings that uh, probably is very often an important dimension that I didn't think of at the time. But class, I mean, I was at Stanford uh, when I published the first article on this, and Klaus Scherer came out to visit, and I had him to my lab to talk, and he presented this stuff, and I said, oh my God, that is, I can't believe how identical this is, that not just the basic idea, but pretty much most of the dimensions of appraisal that we think are important. And one of the things that makes me happiest about the field is that at that point we could have been devastated. We could have said, oh no, my theory is not original, it's not my, I have to work on showing differences between what Klaus says and what I said. And instead we said, this is great. If both of us have this idea, that means it, it's got teeth that um, uh, we are more confident that it's true, and we will talk about the appraisal theory point of view in general, as, yeah, accepting the fact that it's pretty much the same theory, and not worry about the tiny little differences uh, between it. Um, so it's like a constructivist theory, but it says, here's what you need to construct the emotion, that if these these are the perceptions that matter. So it's much less vague than saying, oh, you look around and see your situation and create an emotion, because that uh, doesn't allow you to make a lot of very specific predictions. Mm -hmm. Okay. It yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so now that you've explained to us what is basically appraisal theory, uh, could you tell us what you think about, and I'm going to ask you this because I've already had quite a few evolutionary psychologists on the show, uh, and we've already talked about what is some of their what are some of their points of view in terms of what are emotions and what are their function and things like that so what do you think about uh, their approach when they say that emotions are basically cognitive tools that we evolved during our evolutionary history and that would help us or mo motivate us to solve certain uh, evolutionarily relevant problems related to things like survival and reproduction. What, what do you think about that? I totally agree with that. That I think, and I think nowadays most theorists think that emotions are probably adaptive. Uh, you know, a hundred years ago, people thought, no, this is reason, that's where it's at. And emotions are things that 
um, mentally ill people have and women have and children have, but they're, they're not, um, we should be evolving away from that. But now uh, I agree that emotions, um, emotions in people are what motivate action. And uh, so they're essential that, you know, you can be uh, the smartest person in the universe and if you don't care, then you're not going to run away when the tiger comes. Uh, and um, so they are, in that sense, essential um, for survival. Um, well, no, obviously many species have done very well with uh, triggering stimulus and fixed action patterns. And uh, so ants do not have emotions, I'm pretty sure. Uh, but the line that uh, led to Homo sapiens uh, had a different mechanism for um, motivating behavior that was important for survival, and that was uh, um, emotions. And so I, I see no contradiction with the evolutionary people at all, at least in this general point of view. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's good. And let me just ask you a follow-up question, and because I think that this would also connect your theory to the things we've been learning from evolutionary psychology. That is, would you say that the, the dimensions that you've discovered that are associated to uh, how our emotional systems function, let's say, that those would, would also have an innate aspect to them because those would, uh, would have been the things that we would pay attention to because they were relevant as well for us during our evolution. Yes, I would say so. And I'll say that uh, many evolutionary psychologists do not accept these sort of general level perceptions that are characteristic of appraisal theory, that they have more likely to postulate little modules that have to do with specific situations. So um, uh, somebody stole my axe or something like that, uh, or uh, some other guy is flirting with the woman that I think is mine. And so it's for many of them, hundreds of these specific situations that were important for survival, um, you develop a module that helps you deal with that situation. Um, so, and there's, there's a range of opinions am among them, but many of them don't like the idea that you have a general appraisal of novelty or change. And we would argue that that's the, you know, the first thing you need for survival is when something changes in your environment, you better notice it uh, or you could be dead, right? And uh, 
Likewise, you better notice whether this is a threat or an opportunity. Is it bad or good? Uh, and and so forth. So um, that's a difference between between us and some evolutionary theorists. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay, so now let's talk about the different thing. You already talked a little bit about the different types of theories of emotions that we have, and one of them is uh, categor uh, categorical theories of emotions. Uh, would you say that with the knowledge that we have nowadays, it is still scientifically plausible to talk about uh, distinct emotions or, or that they blur into each other so much that it is no longer really useful? Okay, mostly I agree with the way you just summed it up, that I don't think that we're going to find the anger center in the brain or uh, the sadness center. I believe when Joe Ledoux has written about this, that people have been looking um, for decades to find these places, partly based on the uh, six emotions from Ekman and Friesen's cross-cultural work, and uh, so far they're not finding them, and it seems very unlikely that all of a sudden you're going to uh, find uh, neurological places or processes that uh, uh, correspond exactly to um, these separate emotions. Um, and I think in terms of our own subjective experience, uh, you don't, that there's a whole range of emotional experience in between those emotions. So I don't just go from neutral to angry um, and then that program turns off and maybe I get into a sad program, but uh, many, many of the things we feel are uh, things that we can't even name, but we can name a lot of them, and there's lots of names besides happy, sad, fear, anger, disgust, and surprise. <coughs> um, so, on the other hand, I don't think we can um, say thinking about categories is uh, stupid, pointless, wrong, because our languages have the categories. That's the way we're taught to think about emotions. Uh, and um, in fact, some of those labels are very close. Uh, so there could be something like fear in every language. <clears throat> the cross-cultural people will say, well, they're, what they mean by fear is, fear is not exactly, exactly what we mean by fear. And you say, okay. So if um, that goes back to how for some people the differences are really the most important thing and how for other people they're close enough so they say we're all the same species danger happens to all of us, we have to have something to motivate us to get away from 
the danger and perhaps American fear is not identical to Portuguese fear, but uh, we recognize it uh, in each other. Um, but uh, nonetheless, I think the language makes a difference because if we don't have a word, there are languages that have words for feeling states that are unique to that culture or that are that, to a few cultures. <clears throat> and I think that having um, having a word in your language for a feeling makes it easier to have that feeling. I don't think it's impossible for people in another culture to feel it, but it's not going to be part of the way they think about emotions. Uh, when I ask you, what are you feeling? You're not going to be able to give me a word. You're going to say something like, um, I feel uh, sort of like grateful, but not exactly grateful, a little bit obligated, I can't quite tell you. Um, and so, um, so you'll experience that emotion probably less than people with a word for it, and you won't, uh, I mean, I think having a word in a language is like a magnet in the, in the multidimensional space. And if I'm feeling sort of out of sorts or bad, uh, and there's a word like depressed that's sort of close, that I'm going to start thinking I feel, I'm going to say I feel that, and that's going to have an influence on what I actually do feel. Um, so does that make any sense? Yes, I, th okay. I think it does. I think it does. Okay, and now, how do you approach emotional disorders? Because, I mean, we call them disorders, but could it be the case that what we call emotional disorders are simply uh, emotional states that could also have had a sort of an adaptive value for us? Yes, I mean, and um, that's true. It's not special to emotion. It's true of, of all sorts of things. So pain obviously has huge adaptive value because if I don't feel any pain, I'm going to end up burning up or something without even noticing. But somebody who is afflicted with you know, chronic debilitating pain Clearly, we would call that a disorder. So, like, and so you can take the same logic and talk about fear, for example, that fear is just as essential as pain for helping us avoid um, dangers. But you can get into situations where uh, people feel, you know, chronic anxiety, fear, uh, that's so debilitating that they can't even go out of their houses because uh, they're afraid of what's going to happen to them. Uh, so that's, I mean, many adaptive traits can become 
maladaptive when they're inappropriate to uh, the situation. Um, so, uh, I mean, they, the emotions evolve uh, to let you respond to situations, but you had to appraise the situation accurately, right? So, um, if uh, if I'm a paranoid person, I may think that everything bad that happens to me is due to some human agent, or maybe sometimes a supernatural agent, um, and uh, so and then develop this whole theory that you know people are plotting against me and that uh, somebody's intentions are just to ruin my life and so forth. Um, obviously, perception of hostile agency is important in many cases, but uh, most of these can, uh, can get out of hand. Um, okay, I haven't written or thought a lot about emotional disorders, but... Uh, um, but it comes up because people say, how can you say emotions are adaptive? Because, uh, you know, my Aunt Mary will not walk out of the house because she's afraid she's going to get bitten by a snake. And we live in New York City. There aren't any snakes. Um, and you say, okay, but because it can become maladaptive in some cases doesn't mean that it was maladaptive. It's not an either-or decision. Um. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I understand. Okay. Let's now go through some of your some very specific things that you've studied over the years, uh, also to apply this knowledge to more pra practical stuff. Let's say. So you've also done some work on eyewitness identification or the accuracy of eyewitness identification. So um, I guess that most people have this wrong idea that uh, eyewitnesses correctly identificate the culprit when they see when they see him or her but the, this is not exactly the case and this has to do with memory being inaccurate but emotions can also play a role in this right okay so first of all I want to back up a second and say that I have done a lot of work on emotions. I've also done a lot of work on legal questions, but I have not. Oh, okay. They, they they haven't influenced each other. So I have two hemispheres in the brain, and sometimes I have ideas on this side, and sometimes I have ideas on that side. So certainly, eyewitnesses uh, is um, people have overestimated. Uh, the truth value of what an eyewitness says. And even in the American legal system, eyewitness evidence was regarded as direct evidence, uh, whereas other kinds of evidence, you know, fingerprints, that's circumstantial evidence, right? And there was a slight oh, sort of preference for the direct evidence. Um, since then, uh, we've learned that 
many, many things uh, can impair the accuracy of eyewitnesses. Most obviously, I didn't get a very good look in the first place. It was dark. I saw the person for two seconds, and um, that's an obvious one. But also, um, my expectations uh, about the person. So, this is a huge issue in America now. So, if I'm a policeman, and I think the young black men are likely dangerous and aggressive, uh, when I see <coughs> a young black man walking along the street, I'm much more likely to see signs of dangerousness and aggression than I would if I saw an old white lady walking along the street in exactly the same way. So what I my stereotypes and my expectations can bias my interpretation of what I actually see. Uh, and uh, another big important one that my friend Elizabeth Loftus, who was my friend in graduate school during all of this studies, is the power of after-the-fact suggestion. So I um, I see something happen, and then in the questioning, uh, the police, for example, <clears throat> have a theory about what they think happened, and they sort of start inserting lots of hints to their theory when I'm answering the question. And when I come back for the next set of questions, some of what I got from that conversation is going to have gotten into my own memory. So I think I saw the things that I only learned about later um, from the police, right? So uh, the police are strongly hinting that uh, uh, my uh, the person who mugged me was wearing a, a striped shirt. Maybe they found a striped shirt, so they got that. And uh, I didn't really remember that very well at all, but I've heard it enough from their first questioning that if they ask me next time around, so what kind of a shirt did he have? Then I'll say, oh, it, it had stripes. And then they'll say, aha, that matches the one that we have, and now we've got the evidence. Um, emotions, um, can influence uh, eyewitness accuracy, I think, but this, there used to be also a very strong assumption that if it was that important an emotional experience, you could never forget it. So <clears throat> a rape victim uh, would make an identification of somebody and say, I'll never forget that face. And some people hearing that would say, some people even believe that an image is somehow burned onto your retina if it's really an emotional situation. Um, that's not true. I'm, I don't think you can make the strong statement that emotions always impair eyewitness ability, but they certainly don't always improve it. And there's cases of... Uh, people who, now with DNA, you have cases of people who made false accusations 
and now it can be proven that that was false. It used to be that you basically, um, other evidence would come in and you'd still say, well, I saw it with my own eyes. But most people, when they're confronted with the fact that this DNA matches some other person, say, oh my God, how could I have made that mistake? And um, I can't remember her name, but there's a woman who falsely accused a man of raping her, realized years later that it was a mistake, went to him, apologized, he got out of jail, and they go around the country talking about uh, the risks of false identification now together as a pair. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so now very often in court you're allowed to have an expert come in to talk about what are the factors that uh, impair eyewitness identification, particularly if your eyewitness is the only evidence that you're presenting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, I think that that is very important in order for us to try to avoid that people are falsely accused and condemned of a crime they didn't really commit, right? So, uh, and another aspect that goes into the legal system, let's say, particularly in the US, because in fact, here in Portugal, we don't have that. But um, what are the aspects that we have to consider that might go astray, let's say, uh, related to the decision making done by juries or people? Okay. Um, uh, at, at some point, you may actually want to talk to my husband, Sam Gross, who set up the National Registry of Exonerations, which keeps track of uh, all of the people who've been falsely uh, accused of crimes and been exonerated by the system. And there's now, I think, a couple of thousand in there. And of course, that's a tiny, tiny proportion of the people who are falsely convicted in the first place, because to get the system to admit that that was false takes a lot of work. Um, Okay, but I don't think you can um, lay all of this on the shoulders of the jury. Sure. Somebody arrested the wrong person in the first place. Somebody, the prosecutor then charged this person with the crime, thought there was enough evidence uh, to go ahead, and um, so there are a lot of professionals who've been making this mistake before it even gets to the judge or the jury, and I don't think, well, there's some differences between judges and juries, but I think when you criticize the jury, you should ask, could I count on a judge to not make this mistake? Uh, And then you have um, the problem of how the jury gets the information. The jury gets the information presented to them by two lawyers, one for each side, and those lawyers are going to present their case in a way that's really designed to play on the jurors' emotions, right? So that 
they're not all by themselves making this a big emotional case, but they're getting, uh, in a civil case, uh, the plaintiff might make a whole video of a day in the life of this poor injured person uh, that's really going to um, uh, get to your heart and make you really care, but is totally irrelevant to the fault of how that person got into that situation in the first place. Um, so yes, jurors do often um, make decisions on the basis of, of their emotions because the information is given to them that way and because if it's one thing, I mean, I'm a big fan of the jury, I think that having six or twelve people, points of view on a case adds a whole lot compared to what, you know, one judge who was educated at the Yale Law School and is now going to the Supreme Court of the United States, that's still one person who clearly has a point of view. Um, uh, but what they're not good at is understanding the law. So if there are fine legal distinctions that they have to make, um, they're really not good at it. The lawyers aren't going to bother to really tell them the law, except for the law that favors their side, maybe. <coughs> the judge does that, and what judges usually do, even in 2018, is get this set of legal instructions and read them out loud to the jury. And they go on and on, and they're hard to understand, and you don't let the jurors ask questions. And <clears throat> then you send them into the jury room, and um, they sometimes just don't understand the law well enough to reach the right verdict. Often when they go back and say, Judge, we don't get it. Uh, could you explain this part? And the judge will say something like, do the best you can, and not explain it. And that's because the judge is afraid that if she or he says the wrong thing, not sticking to the exact text of the written instructions, somebody may appeal this case and reverse them. So it's safer for them to say nothing at all, even if they know the jury doesn't understand it. Okay, okay. So let, let us end this conversation today with one last question, because we're also almost eating, uh, eating an hour now. So, okay. uh, what aspects do people have to evaluate and take into account uh, when they're trying to understand uh, why people support certain policies, like, for example, um, for example, uh, sentencing people that commit certain types of crimes to the death penalty? Okay, so you, as you know, America is 
much more punitive uh, than most of the EU uh, countries. We have a death penalty, uh, and prison sentences are much, much longer uh, than they usually are in, in the EU. Um, and I think, I mean, you suggested in the written question you sent me that um, people's attitudes towards the death penalty are an emotional response. and. Um, I think certainly they are, uh, to a large extent, value-based emotional responses. That may be changing, but when I first started studying this, you'd ask people why they favored the death penalty, and most people would say, uh, we need to deter homicides, uh, we uh, need to keep this person from ever doing it again, we need to show other people that if you kill somebody, um, you're uh, not going to uh, be allowed to live. So then I asked them in this survey, okay, so what if whatever evidence it took, you were persuaded that being sentenced to prison for life was just as much of a deterrent as the death penalty, right? So that you don't have to worry about uh, more murders being committed. Then would you favor the death penalty or oppose it? And most people said, I would favor it. So you take away the reason that they just gave you, but you don't change the attitude. And that made me think, you know, the attitude is more fundamental than the reason here, right? And uh, Nowadays, uh, people don't, deterrence is not the main thing people say. Both people who support the death penalty and people who oppose the death penalty say it's wrong to take a life. So, and, <clears throat> you know, that's not an empirical question anymore. So that I can't uh, say, supposing there was empirical evidence that showed that it was not wrong to take a life. That's just not a scientific question, right? Um, but over the course of my lifetime, uh, around somewhere in the 60s, there was only about 50% of Americans in favor of the death penalty. Um, by 1985, 1990, it was close to 80%. Now it's back down to <clears throat> maybe uh, low 60, 60, 60 to 65%. Um, and so it, it may change. I mean, one of the questions I would really like somebody to be able to study is, how do these long-term attitudes change? Because they do. And most research on attitudes brings people into the laboratory for one hour and you know shows them some fake product or something like that. You're not going to change attitudes towards abortion, the death penalty, any of these big emotional issues in one hour. And uh, there's really been very little work on understanding how it happened.
I mean, the best example in America is um, tolerance of gay people, which, while the death penalty attitudes are sort of slowly, sluggishly moved, it seems like almost overnight that uh, we went from <coughs> severe discrimination against gay people, keeping them out of jobs, this, that, the other thing, to um, allowing gay marriage. Um, it just, it isn't such an uh, emotional issue for a lot of people as it used to be. And, how that happened is a wonderful question that we don't know the answer to. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's hope that someone picks up that question and studies it more profoundly. And anyway, I guess that we could say that we've been experiencing progress and let's hope that that continues on, right? So, Dr. Ellsworth, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show. Just before we go, could you please share with people where they can perhaps find your work on the Internet? Oh, um, I, uh, I think that if you uh, just Google my name and a topic, you'll get to things. If there's some specific area where that doesn't work, um, you can certainly send me an email. Uh, the University of Michigan has my email, and um, I'd be happy to point you in a direction. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. I will leave that information in the description of this video when it's out. Okay, so Dr. Ellsworth, again, it was really an interesting conversation and, and I really think that the audience will love it. So again, thank you a lot for taking the time. Thank you. Hi guys, thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there. I would really be thankful for that. And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.